0: You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by PIP Particulture.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. I'm here in Austin, Texas at Fluence with Corinne Wilder, VP of Global Commercial Operations. Corinne, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, of course. Welcome.
1: The last time I was here, things were quite a bit different. Yeah. It's about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you tell any of our listeners who might not be familiar with Fluence kind of what Fluence does and, and kind of your core ethos?
2: So we're a global LED horticultural lighting company, so basically first and foremost we produce, manufacture, design, and ship out LED fixtures for horticulture. So that's everything from leafy greens to big greenhouses of tomatoes, cucumbers, etc. and then into commercial and craft cannabis as well. So core ethos of Fluence which is one of the big reasons I joined the company back in 2016 is we're led by science, we're helping the world grow smarter and we're really backed by results. This is something that from the very beginning I realized that this was a LED fixture for horticulture that really was driving some really key results for our customers. So it wasn't Uh, this red, blue, purple, purple light that many other LED companies were using back in the day because that's how they were driving photosynthesis. As many of you know, uh, the red, the high red content is really one of the key factors in driving that photosynthetic pathway for the plant. But when you really look at the full spectrum of everything that's required to support that plant life and really have a healthy grow, the BW4 Spectra, which is what we call our PhysioSpect indoor, now is was really driving some incredible results for customers, and that's something that I really glommed onto at the front.
1: And you, when I think of the kind of OGs of, of Fluence, you know, your name comes right up there at the top of the list with a handful of others like mm. Tim and Aaron and, and and Riley, and you guys are still here, and mm-hmm. you guys have gone even endured incredible change what I'll call hyper growth. Mm -hmm. If you were in the equipment space in cannabis, you know, that 2017 to maybe 2021 rush was, it was a lot to take on. Yeah. Um, What were you doing before fluids?
2: Oh gosh, yeah. And when you say hyper growth, yeah, it was was almost 100% year over year growth during those times, it was wild. And, you know, as far as being an OG here, That's something that, I I mean, our team is just so tight, right? This core team, we, we went through blood, sweat, and tears together back in the day. It was just really becoming a team that was focused on getting a positive outcome for the customer, so just looking at their whole environmentals and such. And that's one thing that I really loved about Fluence, again, was being able to go in and this is something that earlier in our conversation with Jesse Porter, we were talking about looking at that whole environment, right? It's not just LED lighting because that's not just what customers need. It's talking about what is the whole environment that you're trying to create for for and with the customer, but really for the plant, right? Our customer has always been the plant The growers are the ones that are purchasing the equipment and building the grow rooms, and we're humans, we're all fallible. But this is something that as long as you're paying attention to what the plant actually requires, that's what's key and what's really important. So what I was doing before Fluence, I, I grew up in a state park. My father was a park superintendent at one of the local parks here in Texas called Fairfield Lake State Park and so I always grew up with a very environmental energy efficiency you know organic led mindset. I went and got my degree from Texas A&M in marine biology and ecology actually and so interestingly moved up to Nashville. I was actually following my family at the time and so Moved up to Nashville and I started with Panasonic Lighting Americas. Actually, it was universal lighting technology, which was bought by Panasonic Lighting Americas about two years into my career. And I spent nine years there. So I've been in the lighting industry since 2007. So it's a while, yeah, massive change. Across
1: the board, Mm -hmm. not just in horticulture, but just altogether general efficiencies.
2: Yeah, so technically I came from commercial lighting. I I did everything from customer service to technical engineering services to business development. And then I got into demand planning and then I owned my own whole business uh, unit for, uh, that was about $7 million at the time. So I got to hold that whole business unit, which was sign channel lighting. But the most interesting thing I would say is that I saw the growth and transition from magnetic ballast and old, even before HPS technology. So metal halide, mercury vapor technology. So the other HIDs all the way through into electronic ballast and then into LED. So we had started creating LED fixtures, and that's about when I started transitioning out of, of commercial lighting. I actually left Panasonic. I was experiencing some health issues, which is one of my interesting forays into seeing cannabis as a medicine. Mm-hmm. I moved back down to Texas at the time to go live with my sister, and she lived here in Austin, Texas. So I thought, well, what the heck? That's Austin's an amazing city. It's growing. It's It's got amazing food, it's got amazing culture. So once I got here, I didn't have a job because I had just left Panasonic to focus on my health. And I had started volunteering. There's a, a magazine here in Austin called Austin Edible. There's actually this magazine all across the U.S. If you're not introduced oh, okay. to your city's edible magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about local well, farmers restaurants, markets, so. restaurants, etc. farms. It's really, really interesting. I found a local microgreen hydroponic, no, I'm sorry, ar- aquaponic hydro- producer mm-hmm. that was here in town called Agua Dulce. I started volunteering with them. Funny enough, I w- as I was getting a tour of the facility, I looked into their propagation room and I saw LED light over their their babies, right? the propagation, and I said, what on earth is that? They're like, oh, that's an LED fixture that we're trialing from a startup here in town. It's called BML, Uh which is Build My LED, which is the precursor for Fluence at the time. And he said, I should introduce you because if you worked with Panasonic and LED lighting, then that's definitely somebody that you should get to know. So after volunteering with them for a few times, I met Nick and Randy, and had a about three-hour interview with Jerry here sure, sure. on the phone. It's very easy to talk to Jerry for three hours yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you know Jerry, yeah. and. Uh, yeah after that I, I had started with fluence just how right many away
1: people were at the company when you came on board As was number 32. okay and yeah how many employees are you guys roughly at?
2: Uh, right around uh before the the dip that we're all going through in the market we were about 250.
1: okay yeah and that was a pretty short uh, seven-year run right yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah yeah about five years at that point yeah crazy so and so
1: was this your first time in a startup yeah yeah, how, is, how different is this? I feel oh. like some people thrive in startup environments yeah. other people crumble because mm-hmm. they're looking for that structured environment. And startups typically don't offer a lot of structure. But if you can manage the storm, there's a really incredible opportunities to climb the ladder.
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one thing with uh, me, my career here at Fluence, I actually had to take a step back. So when I as fluent at Fluence and as the startup, because when I left Panasonic, I was director level. Um, I was making a certain amount. I actually took about you know 5k less and went back down to a manager title when I accepted the position with Fluence. But it was something that I really, I, I had been it was exactly what I was looking for. It was creative and it was interesting and it was biology focused with technology focused on energy savings. I, again, that was one thing that I learned from Panasonic was I had really gotten into Title 24 and understanding code. So if you're in California, you, you have to pay attention to what Title 24 is telling you. And that's not something that anybody was really focused at at Panasonic, so I l- read <laughs> most of that code that had to do with fixtures and controls at the time. So I had gotten into understanding rebates, how rebates work through Title 24 and the utilities that supported it, how rebates tied to codes. All of that was very interesting to me because it was structure. So going back to what you were asking about how did I deal with the startup and the structure, it, it was what I wanted to do. I was familiar because I had had all of those different, I had the opportunity to go to all of those different positions at Panasonic. I was very familiar with wearing multiple hats. Mm-hmm. So when I came to the startup, when I saw that it's horticulture, it's LED technology that I'm comfortable with, it's definitely a departure from what I had done before, but not 100%. But it was science focused and that's what i wanted to get into so i thrived i had so much fun it was it was accepting a challenge and then diving into it and at that point in time i made it my life i was so interested in growing i was so interested in the customers that we were meeting because these were all craft growers up in oregon that were Know, bootstrapping it they're trying to figure out how do I convert to LED so I can save money yep. on my energy bills so that I can expand into my next room so I can focus on my quality and consistency because with the HPS technology it was so much heat going into the room and so much energy being used that there it was hard to control that room and that environmental so they're interested in the LED tech to reduce our energy load but also have a better yeah people don't talk about this in a lot but going under broad spectrum you have a much better view of your environment too yeah. you're not under those like LE, or the yellow spectra that's coming out of the hps you can see ipm pests and pathogens much better
1: yeah, nutrition yeah I remember when we were testing a lot of lights it was like i gotta take this plant and go physically bring it into the hallway or outside mm-hmm. and like look at the plants because it was that difficult and you know Method 7 and some of those lens yeah. companies they mm-hmm. weren't quite okay. around. I mean they no, were not they weren't that point, prevalent right. and, mm-hmm. and so luckily for companies like that it's really helped a lot of cultivators be able to see your plant in what I'll call a true color to the human eye.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, That's awesome. I, I love when people tell a story about you know they went from maybe more of a corporate or structured job role they were thriving in and I love the taking a little bit less pay. That, mm-hmm. that tells me that there was a passion and a curiosity yeah. that a lot of people don't find in their day-to-day jobs. Mm-mm. And that is exciting. Yeah. And being able to shape things and lead things is really exciting. I was trying to think of your early customers, because I was very familiar with BML.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you had Spielman in Arizona. was an early one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I went to, I think he was in Flagstaff, if mm-hmm. I'm mistaken. High Mountain Health or something. Yeah because there wasn't when I went when Jerry was like hey I want you to come see these farms these multi-tiered vertical farms I was like cool let's go do it but there was only mm-hmm. like a few that we were able to get into mm-hmm. there was one outside of San Jose I remember going to I can't fog remember
2: city it. no
1: no no, that, no was, it was way before, it was okay like BML. I mean it was, it was mm. all purple
2: oh that Darren Dykstra's grow yes, Darren. yeah
1: but I remember being a grower and, and like going to these places and saying wow, that's so different, Yeah, you know, and as a grower, like most growers who have been trained a certain way or been brought up a certain way, you know, there's a natural resistance where you're like, "Ah, I don't know about that. But Mm -hmm. the curious side of me was like, those are some pretty good looking buds over there, you know, Mm -hmm. and then it's, I think I could, you know, most growers, when I think they see LED for the first time, especially in a full spectrum white light, it grabs their attention. And even if they see that maybe there's the grow they're visiting could use some improvement, they're like, I've seen enough to know that mm-hmm. I can do better with this light. Yeah. If that's what they're doing in these, in these environments and this approach, I know that I can do better than that. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Fluence dropped that all white, and when it became Fluence in that first trade show and there was that all white light, mm-hmm. and back at the trade shows, the booths were really bright the first couple of years, right? All the lights are turned on all the way. Yeah. You, you can't help but notice it. But even the growers who said, I'll never grow with LED, they were standing on the edge of that booth and they were like listening and looking and yeah. they were curious so i definitely think of that moment as a big disruptor in the and also a, a catalyst into the vertical farming space i mean it really kind of flipped the script mm-hmm. um, i think in a previous podcast i referred to uh pre fluence or before fluence like as like a bf you know But like, mm-hmm. bf we were in these blurple things we were like <laughs> i don't know there was kessels there was a handful of others mm-hmm. a lot of the leds at the time had fans on them, and that to dissipate heat.
2: I remember that, and mm-hmm. that
1: was a big turnoff for me. I'm like, oh, there's
2: another thing to break. Yeah,
1: another thing to suck in problems. Mm-hmm. And so when your fixtures came out and there was no fans on them, I was like, and that form factor, I was yeah. like, oh,
2: the passive cooling, and that's one thing that with with this industry that we absolutely at the beginning, which was so hard, but one of the reasons that we've been so successful is that we really had to fight hard for our message because LED had such a black eye in not just cannabis, the whole horticulture industry, because so many brands that hadn't really done their research and hadn't really gone into customers and worked with them and trialed these fixtures to find the best recipe. Nick and Randy spent several years doing that before they actually launched Fluence as the brand for horticulture. We had a huge black eye to overcome because uh, LED's were coming out as a thousand watt replacement for LED's with 600 watts, but they were only delivering a fraction of the PPF. Mm -hmm. the PPFDs were not equivalent Mm -hmm. and so that's when we started going out into the field with our light meters every single Fluence rep had an Apogee or a light core meter and we said look we're going to match PPFD at the very minimum because when you have an HPS install and you are seeing let's say eight to nine hundred PPFD on the canopy then you install an LED fixture that says it's getting you 40% energy reduction but you're only getting six or seven hundred PPFD, it's not gonna work as well. Ours were coming in at least at eight or nine hundred PPFD, in some cases a thousand PPFD. Mm -hmm. So this is where we were really proving out the technology by showing customers, and that's something that nobody else was really doing at the time. We also had to do that on the utility and the rebate side of things, so that's where I came in on that side. And one of the reasons, again, kind of to go back to the startup culture and and my own professional career advancement is I was able to start introducing specific programs as I saw an opportunity for us to help help customers succeed but also increase our business was to set up these initiatives that really were paying off dividends with how we come to market with something that's vetted, that's something that's actually beneficial for the customer and that we have a solid SOP and program around. I mean, your cultivators and our customers talk about SOPs all the time, and that's how you're gonna get to the next level by writing this down. It's the same in business right? It's so exactly the, the same. Just mm-hmm.
1: so like these are evolving quickly.
2: And if you are in a startup and you don't know how to use Excel and pivot tables, go take a Microsoft Excel class. Sure. <laughs> go figure out how to use a pivot table. That's the one thing I will tell you that has helped me big time. It's just analyzing data, being able to put together something that's repeatable, that's you can actually explain and quantify for not only your customer, but for your managers and your leadership team, that's something that is absolutely game changer.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. So my youngest brother, he's a grower at Metrolina. Do you know uh-huh. Metrolina? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, largest oh flora culture yeah, of course. in the United States. Yeah, incredible place. He's like, hes hey bro, what should I be like learning? He's in college. He, went, he graduated from the University of Florida with the Department of Ag. And I was like, learn Excel and learn Spanish.
2: Mm-hmm. I was like, you want to be a grower? Like, yeah.
1: Learn Excel and learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. And the rest will be OK. And what's interesting about Metrolina, and sometimes we, when we in the canvas space specifically, they put a lot of attention on this grower. You know, they even throw the word master in front of it. When a lot of times it's really not worthy from a traditional master trades standpoint. Sure. But what's interesting, my brother told me about Metrolina is he's they built such a solid system that it. Their systems are so strong. Their SOPs are so strong. Their infrastructure is so strong. Their program is so strong he's like, it almost doesn't matter who the grower is. They have yeah. built a, a, a machine so Can't strong fail. that, and they, the way their training works, and the way their support works, mm-hmm. they can almost plug anybody in. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure do they look for certain backgrounds and younger people, because I, I think they think they're more moldable, which I believe is probably true.
2: You know, yeah. Sometimes
1: in the grower position, we see that sometimes experience can be blinding sometimes, or mm-hmm. especially in the cannabis space specifically, because the change is so radical yeah. compared to other crops, a lot of people struggle to keep up with that pace sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you have global in your title. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about you know things that you're excited about outside of the US in terms of maybe research or collaborations or you know cannabis or non-cannabis crops so anything that mm-hmm. uh, that you that gets you excited on daily basis?
2: Well, Europe is really heating up I mean we've seen everything from I mean of course Malta and then what the you know ca- uh, Dutch cannabis experiment that's mm-hmm. happening right now there's so many pieces that are opening up I mean Thailand is really kind of on our forefront right now we're actually seeing quite a lot of success in Thailand right now and Casey Rivero on our team is leading that effort from a biz dev standpoint and that's something that's really interesting because you know there's and not everybody's going to be successful it's almost like an Oklahoma type scenario right where they just opened it up right Right. yeah exactly.
1: California's a good example too Mm -hmm. you know people are like oh a lot of people didn't renew their licenses in California but at the same time we talked about this earlier. There's got to be winners and losers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and not you know. I think a lot of people think there's this pot of gold right. you know, getting in the cannabis space specifically, and the reality is, is yeah, kind of, it's there, but mm-hmm. it's not easy to grab.
2: Right. Uh, it's not, and I, I mean, so I'll say, yeah, in my title is global, but it's also global commercial operations. So when we talk about that, we're talking about not only you know, what markets are opening up, what are we looking at, but how do we best serve that market too? So you know, it's, I won't say it's easy to go out and send a salesperson to that particular location and say, you know, hey, Mr. Customer, let's talk LED lights. Mm -hmm. It's a different thing to set up the actual commercial pathway. So how do we, can we sell into the country? Can we ship there? What's the best economical way to ship there? How are we going to deal with tariffs? Do we bring it into the US first? Do we have another landing facility? We set up a 2PL, a 3PL. How do we how do we position it in our system? How are we forecasting it properly? Do we have the codes? that we need on and all of the labeling and it is everything in each of the individual languages on our user guides so that somebody setting up this fixture in Thailand can actually read it properly, understand it and there's no, you know, obligations or, or liability there if something happens. So there's so many things to think about when you're talking about globally and commercially setting something up versus just, I'm going to go into this market because you can do, what was Jesse talking about again? Go into chat GPT, right, and say, oh, what? Where's, my next, where's the next sure. cannabis operation yeah. happening? So there's a lot uh, that goes into all of this, and I don't know, it's fascinating, actually. That's, that's another thing I'll say just again with career and progression and advancement is just, you know, if you're interested in something, you're going to want to be curious and continue to learn more. And the more you can educate yourself on a subject, if you're curious in it, the more you will increase your own awareness and understanding and expertise on the subject. Just be an expert on something. Pick what you love and become an expert on it.
1: It's funny because people are like, oh Karina you're so smart and you're like well I'm really smart in like these three columns.
2: Yeah, you know?
1: <laughs> But those things are also the columns that I'm most passionate about. Mm-hmm. And as a girl dad I'm always trying to like teach my girls and my goal is to expose them to as much stuff as possible and then help them identify their passions right Mm and then my my messaging at some point when they get older because they're little now is I want you to chase these passions don't worry about all this other noise so much but if if you can hone in on what you're passionate about it's all it's amazing even if the paycheck isn't as big as you maybe you were hoping it was but there's some kind of fulfillment there that it's Mm -hmm. hard to when it doesn't feel like work all the time Mm -hmm. because it's gonna feel like work some of the time it's still work absolutely but if it can feel not work some of the time Mm -hmm. I feel like you're winning your life a bit but as a as a girl, Dad, I can't help but notice that there's not enough strong female leadership in the cannabis space. You know, one of my other companies is consulting, I've I've helped lots of growers over the years, but I want to say only two of them were female. And I think I specifically took the job because I was because like, I want to support oh. these women. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what my question is, but what is it like to be a female in what appears to be a pretty male dominant industry?
2: Yeah. Yikes, that's, I mean, that's such a, a good question and a heavy question. And also an interesting one just because you know, I have met so many wonderful and incredibly intelligent and motiva- motivated and fascinating women in this space. You know, it, it, it is difficult, but it's also something that, I don't know, I've, uh, my dad always said, if you don't see the boundary, it's not there. And it's not exactly true, but if you trick yourself into believing that, you know, you, nothing can hold you back, then that has been a big piece of my personal recipe, I guess, for where I am. <sighs> you, you, you have to find your passion, you have to follow your passion, and then, again, I, I, tr- I always struggle with how do I how do I answer the question, what is it like to be a woman in a male dominated industry? And I think it's, it's a combination of what I said as far as just not recognizing that barrier and not validating it or accepting it. Uh, but that also means that you have to understand that it is actually there and be willing to and be able to overcome and just not accepting no for an answer. Because I have been, I've had tons of pushback. I think everybody wants a rosy story that says, no, I mean, you know, it's its something that you're going to have to accept and or we just need to make it disappear and hope and challenge them in to make sure that its it's not going to actually be there, right? Have them be responsible for dissolving it and I'm, it's not likely that that's going to happen. We've had thousands and thousands of years of human generations where this has been the case, right? This is just something that you you have to recognize it and you have to be willing to say, no, it's not acceptable to me and just continue to fight for yourself. Advocate for yourself, ask for the promotion, ask for the additional assignment, prove out the fact that you can actually do it And hey, you're not gonna be successful every time. You're gonna screw up five, six, seven, eight times before you get it right. But just keep pushing.
1: So what is your hope or vision for the future of CEA, controlled environment agriculture, on the indoor side, in vertical farming? Mm -hmm. You know, where do you see, and where do you hope that that goes in the future, both for cannabis and for non-cannabis crops? Mm
2: -hmm. I think that, I mean, there's so many different rabbit holes we can go down through that conversation. I mean, from the beginning, one of the biggest things that I've always been interested in is, is kind of more crop steering, right? How do we actually get per cultivar uh, that really unique recipe? Now in a commercial setting, that's not likely to be the case, but really honing in on the exact environmentals per individual cultivar, I think is incredibly fascinating. And, you know, like the the research tour that we had earlier with Dave Holly, Dr. Dave Holly, um, we just, you know, there's commercially viable equations, and there's definitely something that's much more craft oriented or home grow oriented that's not necessarily going to be ever technically applied to to at scale. I remember you know probably one of my first green techs that I ever went to there was a interesting company I have no idea what they're doing now but were these little pods that you could put the pod into the grow machine and press a button and it would grow you a head of lettuce in however many days. And to me, that's just, no, there's no, Yeah, yeah. there's no, you know, personal, and I don't wanna say magic to that, but I'm a huge, I have my own garden in the backyard. I have a whole row of beautiful arapaho blackberries that are just as big as my thumb. I mean, it's just, it's so much fun to grow your own plants and have your own garden. And I think that that's something that what I really want to see from the industry, again, is, is much more craft, you know, quality. We always talk about focus on quality versus quantity, but then there's been this huge quantity play over the last few years. How do I go more, bigger, better, faster? And, you know, while that is absolutely a really interesting revenue conversation to a degree, i think i'm more interested in the craft side of things the quality and which is also a revenue play in that you can demand much higher pricing and value by yeah. focusing on something like that
1: and retention too like, exactly you know, once you've had kind of the best of the best, it's hard to go back and mm-hmm. we also saw over the last I don't know, five years or so that going big in the canvas space, doesn't always pay off.
2: It certainly doesn't.
1: Canada kind of got flipped upside down. Absolutely. We see a lot of these larger grows, tending to pull back now. Mm-hmm. I know from my involvement with MSOs in the country that you know there's been a, a big shift of conversation, which is, oh shoot, we got to really pin down quality. Mm-hmm. And now again, genetics are starting to like mm. have a little bit more value to these bigger bigger facilities. And they're starting to realize that if I have the right genetics, it can do most of the heavy lifting for yeah. us. I don't have to keep fighting a plant that is just not checking enough boxes, so to speak.
2: Mm-mm. Yeah, exactly.
1: My last question for you is really around one of your passions of sustainability Paired with aquaponics and farming potentially, but uh-huh. tell me about your aspirations to ha- own and maybe operate a oyster farm.
2: Oh my gosh, this hat this makes me so happy. And Never that I mean, before. no, yeah. I know. Yeah, um, I, I mean, this is something that I've wanted to do for years. Back going back to my marine biology days. Again, oysters are the the engineers of an ecosystem. I mean, they are so important to estuaries that people. I don't think people. Have any clue? So water quality for one, reef structure for two. I mean, these are such fascinating little creatures, and then quite delicious on top of it. So quite the <laughs> and quite they have a lot of zinc. That's right. So if you're low on zinc, head down to Clark's. It's a good place downtown, okay. actually. Noted. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so the idea of this oyster farm is really, I mean, I. I've had so many different dreams on this, right? This is something that, you know, selecting the right location because oysters are a taste of place. If you're talking about cultivation for human consumption, right? There's so many different uses for oysters, but to to grow them and raise them, many people don't know that a commercially harvested oyster is usually somewhere between 2 and 3 years old. Oh, wow. And so this is something that takes quite a bit of time. It's not a, you know, a 12-week run or something, sure. right? We're we're talking about 2 to 3 years here. So you have to pay attention to the environment that you're going into that what's the water quality they like cold environments they grow much faster in warm environments but that's also where you have a lot of again pest and pathogen issues just Mm -hmm. like we know in any cultivation environment right so it's something that you know after reading this gentleman's book his name's rowan jacobson highly recommend him as an author he's got several oyster books that he's written but also there's a wonderful book called american terror that talks about the reason that we find certain crops that are known for that particular location, like maple syrup from Vermont, or apples from Washington, or oysters from, uh, let's say, Puget Sound, for example wonderful cultivation area right up in Washington State. You've got Kumamoto's, you've got Pacific's, you've got all sorts of different Olympia oysters right over in that area. They're wonderful native oysters to the American coast, very very tiny. Um, So this is again something that I just think is super fascinating with oysters. There's so many rabbit holes to go down but when you look at again commercial cultivation as I learned more about horticulture cultivation with cannabis, with leafies, with whatever, um, you propagate, you kind of veg state, and then there's a finishing. So same thing with oysters. You have a seed state, you have, which is called spat, you go into your, I guess, vegetative or growth stage where you have to, it has to latch onto a substrate. So there's often growing baskets and whatnot. And then they'll sit there and go through the yearly change, the tides, the influx of nutrients that naturally occur. But I'd be very interested to see how on a very, very small scale on craft side of things, you can grow oysters in a kind of indoor aquarium environment, feed them particular types of plankton, which absolutely influence their flavor Mm -hmm. and see how that is affected over time. you
1: got to put one in the growth chambers. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, it's gonna take a few years to get it sure, sure. done, but so it's just one of those things, you know, I, I'm a tinker. I like to tinker with things and I, I just think having an oyster farm someday, you know, going out in the early morning and the crisp air in Washington just sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful area too. Mm-hmm. So for for Fluence, for anyone that's interested in learning more about Fluence, you know, what are some of the best ways to get in touch with Fluence? And I guess, what are some of the next trade shows that you guys are gonna be at if anyone's uh, listening and maybe wants to come see and feel and talk to the team in person?
2: Definitely. I mean, we've got a few trade shows lined up this the, for the rest of this year. There's ICBC in Berlin. I've, uh, we're always going to MJ Biz on the commercial side of things, I'm sorry, commercial ag side of things, Canadian Greenhouse Conference. That's about the run-of-the-mill on trade shows that I know, but it's always a great idea to get out on LinkedIn. You can LinkedIn with our team. Our website has a wealth of information. Again, that's one of the best things about Fluence is that we're not proprietary about our information. Dave Holly puts his research out there online. Lori publishes tons of information. Her and her team on photobiology guides definitely have to read that one. Our of our innovator spotlights which are videos they could be you know 20 30 minutes long the one about amplified farms with zip and Steve that one's fantastic and just shows HPS versus LED side-by-side grow and how that performed we're wealth of information online on the website it's uh, it's www.fluence.science super easy
1: one of the things that I, I beyond being a market leader it's it's a I think one of the big differentiators about Fluence is you guys really, yeah, you sell lights, but you're you're a science and research company first Yeah. that sells lights based off of that science and research where a lot of the quote-unquote competition is a lighting company that tries to just pepper in a little bit of science here and there. But I've always been really impressed with Fluence from day one, and you guys have built, continued to build such a strong foundation rooted in science. So yeah. uh, as a cultivator, thank you, because it's helped us out a ton. And it's really propelled um, vertical farming uh, into a whole other paradigm of acceptability with with growers. So I don't know where vertical farming would be without fluence.
2: Ah, thanks.
1: Well, thank you for your time. And it was an honor and pleasure to spend some time with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll see you real soon, I'm sure.
2: All right. All right. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at piphorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.